Uh, we're going to start in Proverbs 11 tonight. So put your uh, little keepers there, or your finger, whatever you need to in Deuteronomy 1, and open to Proverbs 11. I uh, finished up my study yesterday for this uh, chapter. And I normally, I don't always tell you what what I would title our studies. It's kind of more for me, but on all of my notes, I always have a title at the top that kind of is what I, I consider to be the theme that drives through whatever we're studying. And in this case, the title of tonight's study, if I were titling it, would be The Way of, of the Righteous. The Way of the Righteous. And it was interesting because Les gave me a call this afternoon and we were talking for a few minutes and, and he said, boy, I've just got a word on my heart today. Just uh, I was reading Proverbs 11 and the word just jumped off the page over and over and over and over. And he said, I, it's, it's the word righteousness. And I just went, really? <laughs> That's awfully interesting, Les. Because tonight we're going to talk about the way of the righteous. And he got excited and I got excited and we shared a moment of excitement. And I opened up to Proverbs chapter 11. I just want to read through verses 1 through 31. And I want you to watch and just circle every time or underline or just take note of every time the word righteous or righteousness is used. Just in this chapter. Begins a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. Riches do do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of strong men perishes. The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. With his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, all the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there is joyful shouting. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. He who despises his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding keeps silent. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals the matter. Where there's no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there's victory. And he who is a guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it, but he who hates being a guarantor is secure. A gracious woman attains honor, and ruthless men attain riches. The merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life, and he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. Great verse. (laughs) The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. 
There's one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds, withholds grain, the people will curse him, but a blessing will be on his head of him who sells it. He who diligently seeks good seeks favor, but he who seeks evil, evil will come to him. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind, and the foolish will be servants to the wise-hearted. The fruit, listen to this, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he who is wise wins souls if the righteous will be rewarded in the earth how much more the wicked and the sinner oh God tonight we pray that you would show us the way of the righteous Lord we see the contrast between the righteous and the wicked between those who are upright and those who are deceitful and we want to walk in the way of the righteous The path of righteousness. That is the path we would choose. Father, we see upheld in the Bible how wonderful a path it is. That the righteous is like a tree that bears fruit. The righteous is a man who waters. He himself is watered. God, we want to be righteous. And it's a tall order. Because we know how unrighteous we are. And we know how quickly our thoughts run into shadows and dark places but we want to walk in the way of righteousness would you show us Father even tonight as we study would you reveal to us the way of righteousness that we might walk on that path choose that highway take that road and Father whether anyone else in our entire lives are willing to walk that path give us the courage the boldness the desire to walk in the way of the righteous Though we might even feel at times we walk it alone. Oh Jesus, may we walk that path with you. Lead us into righteousness. And teach us tonight, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, over to Deuteronomy. With all that thinking in mind about the righteous, keep that in mind. Deuteronomy, the last book of the Torah. That is the first five books of Moses, who, by the way, his authorship of these first five books has been absolutely confirmed in Scripture and most notably by Jesus himself. So if you believe Jesus, then you know that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, that the Torah is written by him. Now, there are those among the higher critics, which is a kind of a joke title in, in my mind, the great theologians of our day who sit around and they pontificate and they puff their pipes and they... Uh, think of preposterous things and I can't come up with any more peas right now but they sit around and they say things like Moses couldn't possibly have authored these books they were authored by many different people and and so try to undermine the truth of the scriptures well Jesus said hey Moses is the author and that's good enough for me now the Torah is also called the Pentateuch you may know this Pentateuch simply means five volumes five volumes but Torah more notably means in the Hebrew direction Direction. The Torah, the five books of the law, are the direction. Now, thinking about this word righteousness, I heard this from Les today, I thought this is very interesting. Vines tells us that righteousness was originally rendered right-wiseness. Right-wiseness. Now, that being the case, the psalmist 
hooks something together for us, teaches us something, explains something. So again, before going to Deuteronomy chapter 1, flip over to Psalm 1 and listen to this word. Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish the way of the righteous the psalmist defines the way of the righteous as one who is directed Torah directed by the law directed by the law That is, a person who is in the law, meditating on the law, day and night, is like someone who is planted by streams of water, like a tree that grows. And when the psalmist talks about the law, he's not talking about the entire Old Testament. He is pointing directly back to the Torah, to these five books. The law. He says, the law, even in and of itself, the law can show us, can lead us to the way of the righteous. Now, Torah is also linked to another Hebrew word. Torah meaning direction. The other word is yara. Yara, which means to teach. And there's a connection, linguists will tell you, between Torah and yara. To teach. To teach direction. To find direction. When Jim stands before a high school class of students and teaches them, what he's doing is giving direction. Now, something we have forgotten in our public schools, we have certainly lost over the years, is the idea that a teacher actually provides moral compass for the kids. That that actually was part of what teaching was about early on in our country's history. Of course, now we have so many educators who will stand up and say, hey, I just want to throw out a bunch of things and you just figure it out for yourselves. As opposed to actually providing direction. Now, I have on good authority that we still have a moral compass in Jim, so I appreciate you, Jim. Keep, keep it up. <laughs> and, so, and so his wife, Sandra, says, Amen. We need that moral compass, Torah, direction, Yara, to teach. The direction of this teaching points us to the clear and only way, which is why the psalmist says in another place, Psalm 19, that the law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, listen to me on this. We will be amazed. We will be amazed with the history of Israel. When we get into Joshua and Judges and Ruth, First and Second Samuel, and on into the Old Testament, we're going to hear some fantastic stories. We're going to see some examples of things, some individuals that are absolutely amazing. We're going to see profound and breathtaking failures. And it's going to be an exciting study when we get there. We will be moved intimately as we get into the Psalms and the wisdom literature. As we meditate on those things. And it will have a direct impact on our very souls. And we will be enthralled when we get to the prophets. Oh, I can't wait to get to the prophets. Many of you are already saying, hey, when you finish Revelation, will you go on on Sunday nights and just continue teaching and do Daniel? And the answer is no, but we'll get there. We'll get there eventually. I can't wait to do that. <laughs> we may be. But just in case, as Marianne believes, we are raptured before we get out of this law, let me explain something to you, and I, I hope you hear me on this. The law, 
even before arriving in the Psalms and the prophets and the history of Israel the law shows us the way of the righteous within these first five books the way of the righteous is absolutely revealed and it is a path that we can follow a way that we can walk but listen the way is not mapped out as a road it's not a path a footpath or a trail it's not a highway that we chart the way of the righteous is in fact a person the person of Jesus Christ the way is not something achieved by by human walking or running it's not achieved by setting ourselves on a journey and, and following and hanging in there. That's not the way of the righteous. The way of the righteous is Jesus himself. He said in Luke 24:44, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me, about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's all about me, Jesus says. Now you know that that this is what freaked out a lot of the Jewish people of his day. That Jesus took it all and made it about him. They called him a blasphemer as one who made himself equal with God because he said it's all about me. That's where some of the famous old rabbis had to part ways with Jesus. One in particular literally wrote, I like the teachings of Jesus up to the point where he makes it about himself. But see that's the deal. And as we've already seen in the first four of these five books, that the way of the righteous is Jesus Christ. The path to righteousness, as studied in the Torah, shows us Jesus over and over and over again. Because because the way of the righteous is never found in my ability or yours. Our capacity to avoid sin... And our ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and keep this law. It is not in the keeping of this law that we find the way of the righteous. It is in seeing the way of the righteous that the law points out. That way being Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, and the life. Now verse 1 in Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're finally there. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Suf. Between Paran and Topol and Laban and Hazroth and Dizahab. These are the words. This is Moses' final address to the people. 34 chapters worth of Moses addressing Israel. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. Applying the law with relevance and significance for the people. So we're going to understand better from Moses' words in Deuteronomy. Anything more, more now than we've understood in the past about the law. Because Moses is now applying it and saying here's how it works out. Here's how you live it out. Here's how it applies. Now I said this a couple Sundays back. Let me say it again if you're just catching up right now. Chapters 1 through 4. Moses will review the journey. So chapters 1 through 4 is a review of the journey that Israel has taken thus far. We're going to go through these chapters and look at it again. Then we get to chapter 5 and 5 through 26. Moses reveals the relevance of the law. And that's where he begins applying it. And again, Moses is speaking the whole time. He's applying this law and that law all the way through to the people. This is why this is important to you, Moses would say. Chapters 27 through 30, Moses then regards the future. We get into some serious prophecy for Israel. Prophecy that we will see even today having been fulfilled. We can look at what Moses said and we can watch how it's played out over the last, well let's see, 3,500 years, 3,000 years. We can watch how it played out. And then finally the book will end, chapters 31 through 34, with a requiem to Moses. Chapter 34 was likely the very end of it written by Joshua. Because it's about the death of Moses. And it's about Moses himself. 
Now, if you're at all unsure, even at this point, about going through a book that will reveal and restate some of what we've already studied, I want you to skip ahead several chapters to Deuteronomy 31. Skip ahead and take a look at this. Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 9. Deuteronomy 31.9 says the following Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests the sons of Levi who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel and then Moses commanded them saying at the end of every seven years at the time of the year of remission of debts at the feast of booths that's the feast of tabernacles or Sukkoth it's, it's a great time of celebration when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing assemble the people the men and the women and the children and the alien who is in your town so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. Every seventh year, we're told, the people gathered together for the Feast of Booths for the freedom of debt and the Lord commanded each time they gathered in these seven year periods there would be a basically an all-Israel Bible conference. They're going to sit down and for several days go through the law. The priests, the scribes, the the leaders are supposed to stand up and just read the law. Not even teach it as we do. You know if we had to do this every seven years, we'd never get anywhere because it'd take us seven years to do this. But they would go through and just read the law and go through it and re-speak it and restate it again and again and again. And it begs this question, why would God have a Bible conference at a time of worship and celebration? Why why would he do it? In fact, haven't we done enough Bible studying at the bridge, someone might ask? Shouldn't we get on with it? Aren't there other things we need to be about or we need to be considering? Well, Jesus said the following. John 4.24 God is spirit and those who worship him must worship two ways. In spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. In other words, if you're jotting down notes, you might want to write this down. The Word gives weight to the worship. The Word gives weight to the worship. For as I come to know the heart and the passion and the desires, the very ways of God, my worship becomes full. It becomes heavy. It becomes weighty with His glory. I find the more I'm in the Word, the more my worship is filled up with His thoughts. The less I'm in the Word, the more my worship tends to be kind of vapid and empty and missing something. The Word gives weight to worship. It fills it up. I have more to be thankful to God for. I have more to praise Him with. I have more words on my lips to offer up to the Lord. And secondly, the worship worship gives expression to the Word. So the Word gives weight to the worship, filling up, making the worship that much more wonderful. But the worship itself gives expression to the Word. For the more I'm in the Word, the more I want to express what it is that I've heard, what I've learned, what I understand, how my life is being transformed by God. And so I begin to worship out what has come in in the teaching and the study of the Word. All that I learn of the Lord, all that I gain, has an outlet through which to flow powerfully, and that's in our worship. So worship and the Word are bound together wonderfully. Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, was rejoicing. 
says he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. I like that because I can relate to the infants. Yes, Father, he says, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And turning to his disciples, he says privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them. And to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Jesus is in a place of worship here. He's praising God. He's exulting. And what's he exulting in? The Word. He is exulting in the Word. The fact that these wonderful truths have been taken from the so-called wise, maybe the higher critics, and handed out to the infants. And handed out to anybody who is willing to come to the Lord as a child and receive what He has for them. And Jesus is saying, isn't this great? The parables are being misunderstood. Isn't that great? Because they're also being understood by He who has ears to hear. The word and the worship. He praises the Father for revelation to infants and the blessing of His word to ordinary, unschooled, childlike people, people like us. This word matters to the Lord and may matter to us as well. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Mark that. It's 11 days from Mount Sinai, Horeb. It is an only an 11 day journey to get from there into the promised land. That's all it had to take. 11 days. And I'm sure with a painful and heavy heart, Moses wrote verse 3, but in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him to give to them. What could have been an 11 day journey took 40 years. And it's a lesson for us today. The number 40 is interestingly the number of a generation in the Bible. 40 years. The 80 is also a number of a generation used in another place and at one place even 100 years. But 40, 40 is the number of generation applied to the children of Israel. And we recognize at this point, and Moses, I can imagine, can't say that he did for sure, but I can imagine the tears were streaming down his face as he wrote these words, as he penned some of these things. For he realized that at this point, an entire generation of Israel was lost. It was gone. An entire generation by this time had passed away. And why? Why that great loss? Because they didn't hear a word God was saying. They never heard the word. Begs another question. Isaiah 55.10 says, My word which goes forth from my mouth will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And so we wonder, well, if that's the case, Lord, then why when we throw your word out there, why doesn't it change some lives? You've had friends and family come and sit on a Sunday morning in the bridge and hear the word and walk out unfazed. And you go, wait, Lord, you said your word doesn't come back to you empty. Your word is successful. Your word is effective. And if that's the case, why, why, why doesn't it penetrate? Well, there's a very simple reason for that. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 and verse 19 and I, I, I just want to share this 
to give comfort when we get to that place where we wonder why when we speak the word does it seem unsuccessful why when we're praying over someone with the word it seems not to work why when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone they simply don't hear it Matthew 13 verse 19 Jesus said when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. This is the explanation for the sower and the soils. It says in verse 20, The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Oh, wonderful! Yet he has no firm root in himself. It's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. This is too hard for me. This is too much. I don't need this, someone might say. Verse 22, the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Worry and wealth can choke out the word of God. You can sit in here every Wednesday night from now until when Jesus comes, but if you're worried and you're focused on your wealth, you're going to get some word choked out. Jesus goes on. The one on whom seed was sown on the good soil. Verse 23. This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. The word is absolutely effective. The word always brings successful return to the Lord when received by open hearts. And that's the caveat. And that's the critical thing. When Israel's uh, 40-year journey happens in front of us here, 11 days turning into 40 years, it speaks to us today. When generations are lost because the effective word lands on hard, rocky, weedy hearts, or in many cases in the church today, the effective word is not spoken at all. I really, really have a heartache for that. When the word isn't even being preached, how can a people have any chance? But even in places where the word is thrown out, listen to this, it's a good, good thing to consider. Slow learners make for slow travelers. Slow learners become slow travelers. Hearing the word without acting in faith takes us in circles and our journey will repeat itself. The worry of the world that chokes out the word will keep us once again on a circular path, never moving forward in the Lord. And sometimes we wonder why in our own lives, even after Bible study and other things, I just don't seem to be moving forward with God. You might want to go back and check the soil of your heart. What's going on in your heart that might make the word hard to receive, difficult to take in? Because God's word is effective. It's our hearts that make the difference. Paul reminds us that some of the rough spots in our journey have already been mapped out for us in this word. We've gone to this verse several times. Let me read it to you again. I want to point out a couple things. 1 Corinthians 10 is that now famous spot where Paul says all that happened to them happened for us. Everything they went through was so that we could learn from it. And so Paul says these things are examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And then he says four specific things. He says do not be idolaters. We see Israel fall in idol worship. Some of them were, it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Don't be idolaters, he says. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Immorally. Thirdly, he says, nor let us try the Lord. 
It's not push the Lord. It's not test the Lord. It's not try Him. As some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor, number four, and this one is probably the most applicable to many of us today, nor grumble. <laughs> Do you ever grumble? Right here. Grumbling. And it's so funny because we come in on a Sunday morning and, and it's so bright and cheery, you know. And we all do it. We all come up, hey, how's it going? It's great to see you. Yeah. And then we get in the car on the way. I was trembling. See what she was doing around Trembling. And he says, don't grumble. As some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them, again, as example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so the choice is truly ours. Eleven days or forty years. Which would you prefer? I want to jam on into the kingdom myself. Now I believe there's a lot to be learned on the journey. And I want to walk the way of the righteous. But I want to walk the way of the righteous quickly. Because ultimately for me it's not the means. It is the end. It is being with Jesus. It is being in the kingdom. It's crossing over and going into the promised land. And I would rather get there in 11 days than in, or, yeah, 11 days than in 40 years. If the Lord is calling, if the Lord is convicting, if the Lord is commanding in your life, in any area, the sooner you obey, the sooner you move on to the next thing He has for you. But when we stand in disobedience to His Word, we don't move on. We stay in the same place until we develop a little rut in the road going round and round until finally we get it. And when we get it, God says, right on, next thing. 40 years, 11 days, it's our choice, verse 4. He says uh, in the 40th year, verse 3, in the first day of the 11th month, he spoke to the children. Verse 4, after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, Cheryl and I could have more kids, I'd name one Og just for fun, <laughs> who lived in Ashtaroth and Edrei, across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law. To expound this law, verse uh, 6 saying the Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb saying I like this you stayed long enough at this mountain it's God's heart hey you've been here long enough I've taught you what you need to know ready to move on and it depends on us are we running around in that little circular rut or are we ready to move on God says you've been here long enough time's over time's done let's move out let's move on God's timing is so precious my timing is so off. But he says, let's move on. Verse 7. Turn. Turn and set your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon. Hmm. What's happening in Lebanon right now? I don't know if you've been watching the news. I'm not going to get into that tonight. But keep an eye on what's going on. Israel is... Is going against Lebanon in the north, going against Gaza in the south. Syria is obviously connected and behind what's happening. Pay attention, watch the news. That's all I'll say about it right now. But he says, Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to them and their descendants after them. Now, verse 7 is fascinating to me because it describes a huge, huge tract of land. A massive land mass. We've said this many times. I hope it's drilled into your thinking. This is 300,000 square miles that God is giving the people of Israel and they only ever inhabited 30,000. 
10% of what God offered them. And I think in our own lives, man, am I just going for 10%? Or 90%? Or 100%? God says, I have this for you, and I go, thanks, I'll take it. I have this much. Right on. Right over here. That sounds good. That's all I can handle right now, Lord. God's going, okay. Got this much. Yeah, that's good. When has the Euphrates River ever been on the border of Israel? It hasn't. And yet God says that's the border. Okay, when they were in captivity. It's our teacher. Okay, he's getting through. That's good, actually. When they were in captivity. But it wasn't, they weren't a nation and it wasn't their land. Okay. <laughs> but listen, if you believe the promises of God, the Euphrates River will border Israel one day. It will border the land God has promised to His people. It may not seem like it's possible now, but with God all things are possible and He's got a plan. Now Moses, going on, expresses his sense of being overwhelmed by the sheer needs of this mass of people. Reading on in verse 9. It says, I spoke to you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear the burden of you alone. The Lord your God has multiplied you. Behold, you're like this, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you just as He has promised you. We're seeing a little bit of the heart of Moses. He loves this people. He wants to see them flourish. Verse 12, How can I alone bear the load and burden of you and your strife? And so he says, choose wise and discerning and experienced men. I have all three of those words circled in my scriptures. Wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes. And Moses says, and I will appoint them as your heads. You answered me and said, the thing which you have said to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you, leaders of thousands and of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and officers for your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously, righteously, between a man and his fellow countryman, or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard to you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Now I want you to take some notes for the journey here. Just a few things to to consider as we move through this chapter. First off, Moses is talking about this challenge that he had with all the people. He's looking out over the mass of Israel and going, (laughs) Fat chance I can meet all these needs. Lord, what are we to do? How do I handle this? And so he appointed leaders over them. People were put in the place of ministry. These were men who were wise and discerning and experienced. They were already leading, by the way, already serving. And there's a hint right here early on of what elders and leaders in the congregation are to be about and are to do. Number one in our notes of uh, taking this journey of the way of righteousness, the plurality of elders are appointed for the purpose of ministry. The plurality of elders are appointed for the purpose of ministry. And where's the best place, by the way, to find a shepherd? Where's the best place to find a shepherd? If you want to find a shepherd, what do you look for? Sheep. The shepherd is the man who is among the sheep. He is the person who is ministering in the flock. He is the one who is among the people, who's available, who's there, who is already doing ministry. 
Jim and I were, were just talking the other day about a pastor friend of his who didn't like people. And that just blows my mind. And you look shocked, David, but I have seen, I have known in my life many pastors who just didn't like people much. And I wonder, what are you doing? What line of work? It's like a lion tamer who, who you know, has cat allergies. Why would you do that? Why would you pick that profession? How can you not like people? Now, again, I like you. Which is good for you. <laughs> it's good news. And our leaders, our elders, are here because they want to be here. And because they have a love for the people. But Moses saw something. It's something that I have understood over the years. It's a wonderful truth that one man is never enough. One man cannot respond to every need. We're going to be talking about small groups here pretty soon. And just opportunity for people to be in fellowship. Because even with, even with 7, 8, 9, 10, 12 elders, there's still ministry that needs to take place. And the body ministers best to the body. So we'll, we'll be getting there and talking about those things and opportunities for people to be in home fellowships and caring for each other and looking after each other. But the reality is that no one man can care for all the needs of people. And when one man stands up and attempts to do that, it's extremely dangerous. I've mentioned a couple times now that I'm reading this book, Under the Banner of Heaven. It's about fundamental, fundamentalist Mormonism. It's a frightening book. But it goes back over the entire history and traces Joseph Smith. And it has it just the whole page. If you want to understand Mormonism, read this book, Under the Banner of Heaven. It's not a Christian book, but it's an amazing, amazing expose. But I look at this and I'm reading I'm watching what Joseph Smith did and how the people followed him in many ways very blindly. And how he just went further and further and further and further out. Rabbit trail, rabbit trail, rabbit trail, rabbit trail. Until he was so far out and yet the people were just blindly following him, the one man. And that is so dangerous. It is so dangerous. One man is not enough. Which is why Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is only one God. There is no God, he says, but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, he's, he's implying demons, by the way, Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist for Him. One Lord, one God, one man is never enough. And so, even in Moses' case, the greatest prophet in Israel's history, here stands Moses saying, I couldn't handle it, I needed help. And so I appointed men for the purpose of ministry. Ministry. And wise judgment is required. Righteous. Right wiseness. Right? Being right wise. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're looking for. So the plurality of elders are appointed for the purpose of ministry, but also the best judgment, the best judgment is made in the fear of His Majesty. In the fear of God, we find our judgments are most correct. Listen, we all have to make judgment calls in our lives. We all make decisions that affect the direction of which way we're going to go, and we're all seeking the right way. I truly believe that, especially in here. We are seeking that way of righteousness. We want to walk the way God wants us to walk. But there are so many times in our lives where we have multiple paths in front of us, and we're like, what do we do? We have to make a judgment call. That is, the journey on the way of the righteous uh, leads us forward. Keep asking Paul's question. This is key 
to making right judgments in your life. Galatians 1.10 Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? And Paul says, if I were still striving to please men or trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The bondservant of Christ is not men-pleasing, but God-pleasing. The Bible says the fear of man is a snare, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, the beginning of wisdom means when you start to fear the Lord, God can say, now you're starting to get it. Now you're picking it up. The fear of my majesty. You will make wise judgments when you fear the Lord and you don't fear man. Verse 19 tells us that we set out from Horeb. I'm sorry, look look back at verse 17 again. He says, you shall not fear man for the judgment is God's. So let your your fear be the fear of the Lord. Now verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is about to give us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession. As the Lord the God of your fathers has spoken to you, do not fear or be dismayed. And this is where they made that huge, huge mistake. They sought the judgment of fearful man rather than trusting the judgment of the Lord. They wanted to figure out, well, is this a good idea? Should we do this? God's saying go up, and the people are going, yeah, but shouldn't we check it out first? Watch this, verse 22. Then all of you approached me and said, let us send men before us, that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go up and the cities which we shall enter. Moses says, well, a thing pleased me, and I took twelve of your men, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country, and they came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. And there they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands, and they brought it back down to us, and they brought us back a report and said, it is a good land which the Lord our God is about to give us. Everything sounds good so far. Verse 26, yet... You were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of your God. Listen, spying out the land messes up my faith. Spying out the land messes up my faith. It is not faith to spy out the leading of the Lord. Listen carefully to that. It is not faith to spy out the leading of the Lord. In church planning, one of the big things, if you go on the web and... And just look up church planning and do a search. There are all kinds of organizations and companies and, and, and people peoples that are that are into church planning and they have methods and plans and it always starts out with market research. Figuring out the place that you're going to go and how you're going to meet the needs and how to design a church to meet the needs in that particular market. And that is spying out the land and it is faithless and it does not grow, in my mind, a strong church. You know why I believe the Lord is behind the bridge? Because it runs counter to every church growth principle I have ever read in my life. It does. Everything we're doing is just, if you brought in a church growth expert, they would look at the bridge and go, okay, this, shouldn't, this doesn't make sense. Where are your signs? Where's your parking lot? Because once your parking lot is 80% full, people will stop coming. Oh, really? <laughs> have you seen our parking lot on a Sunday? A, a barn? No advertising? No flyers? Wait a minute, you're doing the whole thing by word of mouth? Then what do you do? Well, we open the Bible and read. We pray a lot. We get together and worship. 
yeah but how are you reaching the people I guess people are telling people about Jesus <laughs> how are you doing it the bottom line answer I don't know but God does he knows what he's doing spying out the land you know another example of this is when people move in together Secular sociologists know now that divorce is five times more likely among those who spy out the land by living together, checking out their compatibility. We're going to move in, see if we're compatible, and if so, then we'll get married. That's spying out the land. And spying out the land is disastrous. Why? Watch what happens. You are not willing, verse 26, to go up. Why? Because they heard of some things that made their hearts fail. You rebelled against the command of the Lord, your God, and, and, here it is, you grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he brought us up out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Wah, wah, wah. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying the people are bigger and taller than we. And their cities are large and fortified to heaven. And besides, we saw the sons of the Anakim there, giants. We can't go up into this land. Why did they decide they couldn't go up? Because they spied it out. Had they not spied out the land, they would have gone in and taken it with the power of God. But they looked ahead. They tested the waters to see if it was okay. They looked into it. And they just saw enough to cause their hearts to melt. And gang, where did the grumbling, or in some translations the murmuring, where did it take root? Look at the verse. Verse 27. Where did the grumbling happen? In their tents. In their tents. Interesting. You might jot this down. The tent is a dangerous place to murmur. We have learned something, I believe, in our culture, in our marriages. That the marriage, because my wife and I are one, that's the place when I can gossip. That's the place where I can murmur and grumble about other people. That's where it's safe there. I'm not talking to other people. I'm not being the traditional church gossip going around. I'm just talking to my wife. Murmuring, grumbling, sitting down at the dinner table when no one else is around and saying, I just don't like what's going on in that church there. I just think it's sorry about that. Grumble, 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 murmur, murmur, murmur. The marriage, the home, the family is not the place that the Lord sanctified for grumbling. It's not the place that the Lord would have. Behind the doors grumbling, gang, listen, at, at best it will slow down our journey. At worst, it will wipe us out in the wilderness as it did to the people of Israel. In the gathered company, in the congregation, it was one thing. But then they went into their tents and they began to grumble and talk. Husbands with wives, fathers with kids, families together, just around their little quiet place where they didn't think anyone else was hearing. And the grumbling grew from there and it infected Israel and they were faithless and they ended up wiped out over 40 years because they started grumbling in their tents. Paul says in Philippians 2.14, Do all things without grumbling. Or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And gang, if you want to appear as lights in the world, husbands and wives challenging each other to stop grumbling in the home. If the murmuring happens, and I, I confess, I am so guilty of this. The first person I go to if I'm frustrated about anything going on is my wife. Did you see what is it? Grumble, 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 grumble. Murmur, murmur, Come here, sit down. Come into my office, honey. We need to talk for a minute. Murmur, 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 grumble, grumble. And then she goes out of my office 
And I'm still in my office going, murmur, murmur. You know, I mean, it just it goes around and around and it feeds itself. And now you got two people who are upset. And it just grows from there. The tent is a dangerous place to murmur. Let, can we pause for a minute? I want to pray something. Let's bow. Lord, I pray that you will replace our murmuring with the word and with worship. I pray that in our marriages and in our families that we would be about positive things. Whatever is pure and wonderful. Father, that we would think on the things you want us to think about. That, Lord, as husbands, we would cover our wives with grace and not with grumbling. And, Father, that our wives would love and support us with grace and not grumbling. And that we would share in our marriages, in our homes, in our families, Lord. That these places literally would be sanctified. That they would be the brightest places in our lives. And not the place of the shadows. And not the place of hidden things. And talking behind other people's backs. Lord, replace our grumbling with worship. And with your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, moving on, verse 29. Says, then I said to them, do not be shocked, nor fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt, before your eyes, he says. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son, in all the ways in which you have walked until you came to this place. And yet for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God, Moses reminds them, who goes before you. And on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. I have verse 33 highlighted, underlined, and several things circled. God goes before you on your way. He seeks out the place for you to encamp in a fire by night, the cloud by day, to show you the way in which you should go. What way is that? It's the way of the righteous. It is the way of righteousness. God lays it out for you. How could the people possibly know? How could they trust that the Lord would go before them into the promised land? How could they do it? Because they had already seen it. They had already experienced the grace, the goodness, the leading of the Lord, His guidance. They had walked it out literally for 40 years. That's part of the 40 year journey. God was showing them how He was effective to lead them. Helping them learn how to trust Him. Verse 33 is wonderful because it just paints this gracious picture of a God who doesn't send us out there and say, Good luck! Have you ever seen the the old movie, um, the musical Fiddler on the... No, not Fiddler. Oliver. The musical Oliver. I don't know how I got those two confused. But have you seen Oliver? Yeah. A few of you have. Okay. There's a character in the musical Oliver named Fagin. Remember Fagin? He's, he's the guy, he's the older man who has all these boys and he sends them all out as pickpockets and they bring all the money back to him. And there's a great song where he sings, Cheerio, but be back soon. And he sings this song and he says, they're all marching out to go off and be pickpockets out through the streets of London. And he's standing up there, you know, and he's going to go back in and just relax until they come back with the loot. And he's saying, go on, go on out there, you take care of it, and then come back and bring it all to me. And that is not a picture of the Lord. Although some people think it is. Some people think God says, I've given you a task to do, now go do it. Go take care of it. And you take whatever, and you bring it back to me, and I'll be here when you get back. Cheerio, but be back soon. Take care of what I've sent you out to take care of, and bring it on back to me. That's not the Lord. He goes first. 
He goes out first. He is always the one saying, come on, come on, it's, the water's warm, it's fine, it's good over here. Come on, come on, here's a life, I want you to change, no, you don't want to talk to them. Come on, come talk to them. I've got a word, I will tell you what, you just come with, I'm already before you. This is what God does. He goes before us. He seeks out. For those of you who have recently moved, Mike and Alicia, moved here from London. God was here before you were. He sought out this place. He prepared it for you to come into it. And sometimes we forget that. We go into a, a new or a different place and we go, oh, I don't know why I'm here, Lord. Why did you? And, and he was here long before us getting it ready. Preparing the way. He does that in, in those divine moments where we, we have those, those meetings with people we just run into and suddenly we're talking about Jesus and we don't even know how it happened. God had already set that up. Because he's got his schedule book and he really wants to overlay his schedule book on ours. He always goes before us. My God is a God who leads. Who leads? He doesn't sit back and wait. So... A vital tool, you can jot this down, number five, a vital tool for going forward on the journey is memory. 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 The Lord led the people. He led them with the warmth and the light of fire at night. He led them with the cool and the cover of a cloud in the day. Through the desert, even through that Red Sea, He led them forward and memory, memory gang, is a gift from God for us as we walk on this journey. What do you mean exactly by that? Look at Psalm 77. This psalm is it's one to dog ear in your Bibles because it is such a passionate reminder of where we can go when the place we are seems dark and desolate and empty when we feel like God is not there, when we stand on the border of the promised land as Israel did, and we wonder how can we possibly go in? The land ahead of us, they're too big, they're too monstrous, it's too hard, we can't do it. And you wonder, where is the Lord in all that? Asaph, the writer of Psalm 77. Ah, oh, this is wonderful. Just listen to this. My voice rises to God and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out with weariness, and my soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, I'm disturbed. I sigh, and my spirit grows faint. Ever been there? He says, You have held my eyelids open. I'm so troubled, I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I'll remember, I'll remember my song in the night. This is a good thing. So I'm going to meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. And then he spins back down to the negative. He says, Will the Lord reject forever? Will He never be favorable again? Has His loving kindness ceased forever? Has His promise to come, has His promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has He in anger withdrawn His compassion? And then I said, It is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. What's going on here? He's on an emotional roller coaster. In one moment he's saying, I'm in despair, I can't even sleep, I'm stressed out. Oh, I'm going to think about God. I'm going to think about God. But as I think about God, oh, I just wonder, where is He? Why isn't He responding? How come I can't hear from Him? I'm in a place of silence. And then he comes to it, and it's awesome. Verse 11, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I'll meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? 
You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have, by your power, redeemed your peoples, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. He goes back further than that. He says, the waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth the sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. Well, the sound of your thunder was in the world when the lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. His answer to his despair was a long memory. Asaph was able to look back literally hundreds of years to a time he had not known and remember what God had done for Israel. And in that memory he found his comfort. As we walk on the way of the righteous, as we take this journey home, there are times of silence. There are times where the Lord is quietly waiting to see if we will remember what He did back there. If we will recall how He blessed us last week or last year or 20 years ago. Do you know what the Lord has done? Remember, remember, remember. The tool for going forward in the journey is a memory. Memory. My God is a God who leads. Chuck Smith says, where God guides, God provides. Has He ever provided for you? Then in the day where you feel like you lack provision, you praise Him for the days of His provision before. A memory on the journey. I love this verse. Jesus is talking to Peter. And it's after, the, uh, after His resurrection, just before His ascension. And He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Pete, when you were younger, you used to dress yourself walk wherever you wanted to go but when you grow old you will stretch out your hands someone else will dress you and bring you where you do not wish to go now he said this signifying what kind of death Peter would glorify God with and when he had spoken this Jesus said to him follow me follow me now listen to that. That almost sounds from human thinking incongruous. He says, when you're older, you're going to go somewhere, you're going to stretch out your hands, you're going to be dressed. He's talking about Peter's crucifixion, which tradition tells us happened upside down. But he's talking about the way Peter was going to die. Someone's going to dress you up, stretch out your arms, and they're going to nail you to a cross, Peter. That's where you're headed. It's not where you want to go, but that's where you're going to go. And he says, and by the way, the way to get there, follow me. What? (laughs) I think if you're telling me that the way to get crucified is to follow Jesus, I'm not sure that's the way I want to go. But Jesus says, no, that's exactly the way I want to go. That is the way of the righteous. It's the way of the righteous because Jesus is the righteous one. He says in Psalm 23, verse 3, the Bible tells us, He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. For His name's sake. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're almost done here. Verse 34. You may be saying, Rick, that's about halfway. I know, but we're almost done. Verse 34. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words. The Lord heard the sound of your words. And he was angry and took an oath, saying, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot because he followed the Lord fully. Remember what land Caleb end up, ends up getting? He ends up getting the region of the Anakim, the giants. And as an old man, Caleb sets up shop there to fight the giants. Because that's where Caleb's heart was. Fighting to the day he died. What a stud, Caleb. Verse 37, The Lord was angry with me, Moses says, also on your account. 
And I'm not sure if Moses is kind of trying to throw it back on the children of Israel there. Sounds kind of like he is, doesn't it? What was angry with me? It's your fault. But he was mad at me too, saying, Not even you shall enter there. Verse 38, Joshua, the son of Nun, which I guess means he was Catholic, who stands before you. Sorry, it's not funny. He actually couldn't be the son of a nun, could he? Is that... Well, not, not technically, I guess. It, sorry. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter there, watch this, encourage him, for he will cause Israel to inherit it. Moses says right here, Joshua is going to be your leader. Encourage him. Support him. Back him up. It's one of the best things you can do for a pastor or an elder. I'm not asking for extra encouragement tonight. However... I do need your encouragement from time to time. Just to be honest. I don't need your admiration. Don't really want that. Don't need you to come up after and study your message and say, Oh, Rick, that was changed my life. You know, I don't need that. But I need encouragement. Hang in there, Rick. I need to know people are praying for me. Our elders need encouragement. There's a wonderful verse in Hebrews chapter 13 that always kind of tickles me a little bit. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now I would point you to another verse where Paul says, Follow my example as I follow Christ. That's the caveat. Don't ever just blindly obey your leaders. Obey your leaders, follow leaders as they follow Christ. That's critical. But he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. <laughs> you hear that? See, I think that's kind of funny. No one else really... I thought it was funny. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. In other words, encourage them, support them, because if they're not joyful in their work, it's not going to be fun for you either. It's kind of like the old phrase, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Okay? <laughs> now watch this. Verse 39, going on. Moreover, he says, your little ones, who you said would become a prey... And your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. That fascinates me. Moses talks about this new generation that grew up, and the kids of this new generation. And he says, they have no knowledge of good or evil. In other words, they grew up in the wilderness. They grew up at a time under the leadership and the authority of God, the cloud by day, the fire at night, the people following the Lord. And he says, they don't know, they have no knowledge of good or evil. In other words, the children of this generation grew up knowing one thing and one thing alone, and that is the leading of the Lord. Now you might say, okay, but I read numbers, (laughs) studied through that, and I saw evil. And I saw bad choices. And I saw things going on. What does this talk about? Gang, these childhoods were spent in the wilderness where thirst was provided by the Lord, where hunger was satiated by God, where the imminent authority and the direction was the Lord. They never packed up and went anywhere unless the Lord did first. This is how they lived. This is how they grew up. And you might say, well, that being the case, why did this generation sin so extravagantly, especially after they came into the land? Why did it get so bad after all that time spent with the Lord? Now think about this. If you and I could take a 40-year retreat with Jesus, 40 years, wouldn't you think after 40 years we would come back and be, I mean, just shy of perfect? 
<laughs> I mean, don't you think we would be so darn close you could almost not even tell that we weren't? I mean, man, 40 years alone with Jesus, being led by Jesus. Well, we would come back after 40 years and I almost guarantee within a week we'd blow it. And in two weeks we'd be back to our old selves. Because the sin nature is kind of a constant thing. The reason I bring this up and point this out is that humanity, humanity will always choose to sin, at least this side of heaven. We'll always choose make these wrong choices. And they're saying, well, Rick, doesn't this blow the whole way of the righteous off the charts? No, it doesn't, because again, the way of the righteous, well, the righteous one is Jesus. But humanity, gang, we're shown probably the most powerful example that I've seen in all of Scripture, and we'll see it on Sunday night in the Revelation study, but I want to give you a hint of this. Humanity will sin extravagantly after a thousand years of being led by Jesus on earth. Incredible to even imagine that. A thousand years of Jesus ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, of perfect peace, perfect prosperity, perfect joy and wonderment with Jesus. A thousand years. And at the end of it, Revelation 20 verse 1 says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So during this reign of Jesus, Satan isn't even available. He's not even running around trying to trip people up. There's none of that there. Just Jesus there, ruling and reigning. Wonderful. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And it says, Satan is thrown into the abyss. It was shut and sealed over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Amen. We need that today. Until the thousand years were completed and after these things, he must be released for a short time. And the first time I read that verse, I just said, why? It makes no sense to me. I don't understand that. In fact, there's entire theologies of the end time that don't believe in the millennial kingdom at all because it's hard. it just doesn't make sense when you read it quickly. That Jesus would come and reign for a thousand years and then poof, he's out of here and, and Satan's back and it's all just crazy again. He doesn't, by the way, poof, get out of here at the end of the thousand years. He immediately puts Satan down. But the Bible tells us there will be a massive, massive rebellion of people following Satan at the end of having lived under Jesus' rule for a thousand years. Why? Why is that even in there? Because, gang, even under the picture, perfect rule and reign of Jesus, we find out one thing and one thing alone, that grace is necessary. That there will not be a single person walking in eternity who will be there for any reason other than grace. There's not going to be a single soul who can say, I did pretty good, which is why I'm here. We will all spend eternity going, praise God, thank you Lord, it is your grace and your grace alone that purchased my place here. The way of the righteous is the way of grace. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The way is Jesus' own righteousness. That is the way of the righteous. Verse 40, we'll finish up here. Tells us, but as for you, turn around and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Moses is now saying, all this, you know... Basically, it came up and your hearts faltered. And so, turn around, the Lord said, and set out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. And you said to me, we have sinned against the Lord. We will indeed go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every man of you girded on his weapons, you may remember this, his weapons of war, and regarded it as easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Moses says, say to them, do not go up or fight. I am not among you. I would have been among you, but your hearts faltered at the border. I am not among you. Don't go otherwise. 
He says, you'll be defeated before your enemies. Verse 43, so I spoke to you, Moses said. But you would not listen. Instead, you rebelled against the command of the Lord and acted presumptuously. Important word there. You acted presumptuously. You went up into the hill country. And the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out and they came out against you and chased you as bees do. <laughs> we, were, we were geocaching the other day with Jim and Sandra. There was a little uh, geocache where we had to go into this um, little kind of thicket area and there were bees, honeybees, like thick. And there was a sign, careful honeybees. And it was great because Sandra just went, ah, honeybees, honeybees. And she just went right in walking around. She's like, come on, Cheryl. And I'm going, bees, bees. But as bees chase, you get this picture of, uh, of all these bees coming out and attacking Israel. It says that the Amorites crushed them from Seir to Hormah. To Hormah. And then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice, nor give ear to you. And so you remained in Kadesh many days, the days that you spent there. And those must have been long days at Kadesh. After they were destroyed and driven out, days heavy with confusion, days thick with sorrow, but they still didn't understand what was going on here. They didn't have faith when God told them to go in. They decided instead to prove themselves when God said not to, and that, my friends, is religion. That's religion. I am proving myself when God says, no, no, I don't want you to go there. Yeah, but God, if I go here, I can prove how good I really am. No, don't go there. Yeah, but Lord, if I go, I can prove myself. It is religion in its worst form. Faith. Faith is saying, I'm not just going... I, I, faith is saying, I'm going to do what you tell me to do. I am only going to do what you tell me to do, Lord, but I'm not going to presume on your will. I'm not going to mess things up by spying out the land ahead of time. I'm not going to murmur. I'm going to remember what you've done. I'm going to step out faithfully. Now when I, we started tonight, I said, the way of the righteous is not found in the ability to keep the law. That's religion. The study of the law for us is not about learning to keep the law. That is not the way of the righteous. The study of the law is the discovery of the only one who is righteous about whom the law speaks, and that is Jesus. And so as we study, we look for him, we see him, we understand him, and we come to know that the only way to walk the way of the righteous, the way of grace, is to do so through faith in Jesus Christ. The only thing that you can take credit for in all this is your faith. And by the way, you really can't take credit for that either. Because Jesus says, I give you the faith to believe. The faith to even know I'm real. It comes from above. And Paul said, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, He said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. His grace is available. Faith is all we need. And if you lack it, ask Him for it. For you might walk the way of the righteous. I was hoping to go a little bit further, but we'll stop tonight right there. Let's pray together. Father, we realize that the way of the righteous is simply Jesus. And we want to walk this path, Lord Jesus, with you. We want to be carried by you to experience the warmth of your light and the cool of your covering. And Lord, we praise you and we thank you because you are a God who goes out ahead of us. You are a God who leads forward. 
You are a God who calls us on and invites us to the place where you are. Jesus, even as you said, you go ahead to prepare a place for us. That where you are, we may also be. Jesus, you said that we know the way which you are going. We do know the way, Lord. You are the way. And I pray you would deepen our faith in you, Lord Jesus. Our relationships with you, Lord Jesus. Moment by moment, day by day, may may we be growing in our love for you, our relationship with you. As we learn from all the things that we've been studying, Lord, bless this study. Write it in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.